0: All right, let's get into the Word. We're in the book of Jeremiah. We're studying through that book chapter by chapter. We find ourselves in chapter 33. We're gonna look at verses 1 through 26, the entire chapter. The topic we're gonna find there is this. As the fall of Jerusalem rapidly approaches, God insists his love for Israel and Judah is unwavering. The title of our message, Might as well face it, God's Predicted to Love. Let's have a word of prayer. I don't know why you think that's funny, but anyway, let's pray. Oh, Lord, we, we love your word. I guess that's the only way that I can put it this morning. It, it, it's kind of a lame thing to say. It doesn't really capture the heart of what we feel when we come to the word of God. But we do love it. We love you. We love to see you revealed in it. And our hope and our prayer this morning is that by your indwelling spirit in the hearts of Christians, by the spirit who is in this place to minister Christ, that we would see Jesus risen from the dead and seated at the right hand of glory. That we would learn something about your love, grace, mercy, acceptance, and forgiveness of us as sinners. And Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, they've never been born again, that they would be overwhelmed by the understanding that God became man and died on the cross and rose from the dead, that they might live forever. Bring that simple but profound truth to their hearts. Help us, Lord, to understand the text in context and what it means to us today. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed, said, amen. They have titles like Why Do Bad Things Happen to God's People and Where Is God When It Hurts and The Problem of Pain. They are books by Christians which attempt to explain or defend the love of the omnipotent God of the Bible in light of the reality of sin and human suffering. There's an entire branch of theological study dedicated to the subject called theodicy. My own attempt to answer the problem of pain is summed up in two words, sin And long-suffering. Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden ruined the world that God created. God immediately acted to redeem what Adam had ruined and has been long-suffering throughout human history, allowing bad things to continue because he's not willing any should perish but rather come to eternal life. Whether you like my answer or have one of your own, people suffer. You are probably suffering in some way right now. It's not an academic subject for you. It's intensely personal. You need God to respond and you need him to respond today. Our text will help. Jeremiah was suffering quite intensely. He was a mostly despised prophet who was under house arrest for nothing more than obeying God. Worse, he was under house arrest in a temple that was soon to be set on fire in a city that was under siege among a people who would be taken captive for the next 70 years. If anyone could ask, where is God when it hurts, it would be Jeremiah. God answered his prophet especially powerfully in verse 3, but really the whole chapter speaks to why bad things happen to God's people. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, there are things you don't know that God wants to show you for the first time. And number two, there are things you do know that God wants to show you all the time. Let's take a look first of all of what you and I don't know in verses one through three. And in those verses, verse three just absolutely jumps out at you and offers you comfort on a grand scale. It says, call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. It's one of those awesome standalone verses that we like to pull out in times of trouble. It wouldn't surprise me if a lot of you had that written somewhere uh, in and around your home or had it on a promise box. It's a great verse. But what does it really say? Well, most of the time we read it as a guarantee that God hears and answers prayer. While it's true that God hears and answers prayer, that isn't exactly what these words say. God was encouraging Jeremiah to call on him for sure, but God didn't promise to answer any particular prayer or prayers. He said he would show some things to Jeremiah, things Jeremiah did not know. The particular word for show is important. It's a word that means to show for the first time it is used of something unknown and unknowable until it is told to you for the first time. While we're talking words, mighty is another important word in this verse. It literally means inaccessible or impossible. Keep in mind the context again. Jeremiah under arrest in a doomed temple in a city about to fall among a people soon to be deported. God invited Jeremiah To call upon him in his time of trouble, and God promised he would answer him by showing him things for the very first time that were inaccessible and impossible to know apart from the unique suffering he was enduring as a servant of God. That's what this verse says. What kinds of things would God show Jeremiah? Well, you might be tempted to think that the rest of the chapter are those things, but I think we'd be wrong in assuming that because as you read the rest of the chapter, which we will this morning, there's really nothing new in that uh, rest of that chapter. It's a reiteration of the ultimate restoration of Israel that God had already revealed. So there's nothing that's impossible or inaccessible prior because God had already told him these things. And so taking all of this together, it leads me to the conclusion that the inaccessible, impossible knowledge that God wanted to show Jeremiah for the first time had to do with God's grace and God's love and God's presence, even in the darkest moments of his life. God wanted to show Jeremiah things about himself, about God, that he could not possibly access or understand any other way. Bad things happen to God's people. When they do, you call out to him and he shows you things, intimate things, wonderful things that are impossible to convey intellectually that are inaccessible by any other means. Job was shown these things. Don't you, anytime a pastor mentions Job and even in, when I mention Job, I cringe <clears throat> You just, you know, when I talk to my pastor friends, say, hey, what do you teach you? I'm in Jeremiah. They say, oh, we're, we just started Job. I know you have to do that, but why? Are you a glutton for punishment? I mean, because, you know, the whole book is really pretty bleak. It opens in heaven with the devil coming before the Lord saying, I want to destroy Job. And God says, he loves me. And no matter what you do to him, he will still love me. And so here, here's some things you can do and here's some things you can't do. And man, the devil just, it, it, he has a field day in Job's life. Job, you know, ends up sitting in a garbage dump where they're burning garbage all around him. Not, ex, not exactly environmentally friendly in those days. Remember the old days when you had an incinerator in your, did you ever I know a lot of you you're thinking well we're a farm community junior such a city kid you know but down in the city in the big city we used to have incinerators in our backyard where you burn trash you can't do that anymore I think it's a great system but anyway um, I used to think it was a for idol worship when I was a kid because my parents never explained to me what it was by that time they had quit burning trash and I went back there and there's this, like altar back there you know with ashes in it and I thought Is that where my dog ended up? But anyway, (laughs) I don't know what I'm talking about now. But Job, he's sitting on this ash heap. And he's not only all, you know, his his family's been wiped out, his fortune has been wiped out, his animals are, I mean, then he's covered with boils from head to toe. You ever had even one boil? It is the nastiest, grossest thing in the world. It's first of all painful, and then it's filled with a combination of blood and pus. And you want to break the thing, but you don't want to break the thing. And he's breaking his because he's got a pot shirt and he's scraping himself. And so he's sitting there, and I'm guessing that he had stuff inside of his mouth too. That's just, you know, just icing on the cake. And he's talking kind of like this. And he's sitting there scraping himself. And, and so he's all bloody and pussy and he's lost everything. He's got three friends who are accusing him of, of it all being his fault. It can't get any worse. And then he's accusing God and he, you know, he has some choice words for God. In the end, God gives him no real answer. God doesn't tell him why he permitted the devil certain freedom to afflict him. But Jove nevertheless arrived at a knowledge that was previously inaccessible and impossible to achieve without suffering because in chapter 42, verse 5, at the end of it all, he says this. He says this to God, I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Wow. Job, I mean, when you first meet him, he's making sacrifice. He's sacrificing for his kids. He's a godly individual. He goes to a Calvary chapel there. He's probably a deacon or an elder. You know, I mean, he's, he's a great guy. But even he realizes that there's only so much he could know about the living God in, by head knowledge or by serving him or by all these normal means. He knows that there is a knowledge that is impossible to achieve and inaccessible to him unless he's in a situation where God becomes extremely real to him. And in that case, it was affliction and suffering where he needed to understand that when he was ready to quit, when he was ready to give up, when he had lost hope, God would not let go of him, but would get him through it and bring him through it to the end. And that's what Jeremiah is promised here. He's not promised any answer to any prayer. God does answer prayers, and we're thankful for that. He's promised something so much greater. God says, in this time of incredible stress and distress, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but eventually you're gonna know some things that are impossible for you to know and inaccessible any other way than the way I've chosen to do it. And so verse one, moreover, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah a second time while he was still shut up in the court of the prison saying, thus says the Lord who made it, the Lord who formed it to establish it, the Lord is his name, Call to me, and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. Now, the words for made and formed are words from the Genesis account of creation. God reminded Jeremiah that he was, in fact, omnipotent. He's saying, Jeremiah, I see the situation that you're in. I am the God who created the universe. I am the omnipotent God. Any answer that you wanna to give to the problem of pain or human suffering has to include the truth that God is omnipotent. God is also love. The ruin of his creation by mankind doesn't in any way cancel out his love. And so that's the, that's the problem of pain. That's the difficulty. How can God be omnipotent and all loving at the same time? And people, they blow a fuse trying to think that through. Actually, the more I read the Bible, the more obvious it becomes to me. But it, it's still a big problem for people. But let me let me let you in on a secret. If you abandon God or any thought about the greatness of God, the omnipotence of God, or the love of God, if you abandon God, you are eventually left with an entirely man-centered philosophy that uh, is called existentialism. I studied, before I was a Christian, I was a... Studying existentialism, it got a philosophy degree down at the University of California, Riverside. Existentialism is the big thing. It, it, maybe there's a God, it doesn't matter, but there's probably not a God. All there is is your existence. And, and they came to this conclusion, existentialism really came into its own uh, after World War II because people said, look at the horrible condition of the world. There can't be a God if this could happen. And so we're just on our own. But you know what's interesting in a sad way about existentialism? It eventually leads to despair. It has to because there's no reason to be alive. There's no standard of living. There's there's no reason to be good. There's no reason to be evil. There's just existence. And at graduate level courses, they actually teach people that they shouldn't kill themselves if you're gonna go on and study existentialism and be a, you know, a philosopher, they have to convince you not to kill yourself because every day when you get up, it's just as valid an option as going to work. If there's no God and if everything is just based on your existence and nothing matters, when you get up, you might look in the mirror and say, do I wanna brush my teeth or do I wanna blow my brains out because it really doesn't matter at all. The world is absurd. Life is insane. There's no meaning or purpose. And so, uh, I don't know about you, but I vote for the Bible. Uh, I, I, kinda, I kind of understand what God is saying. He's saying, Gene, Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden. He ruined my creation. And it remains ruined even though I've redeemed it and I'm going to finalize that redemption one day. In the meantime, yes, a lot of people suffer You're suffering but also a lot of people are getting saved and they're gonna live with me forever. I am omnipotent, but I'm also a God of love. All great love stories portray the lovers as enduring incredible hardship to be with one another or to get back to one another. You don't wanna watch a movie about two people who are in love and they never have any hardship. Who cares? How do you know you're in love? Unless there's some problem. Unless there's some separation, some difficulty where you have to fight and claw to get back to the one you love, and then you think, oh, you're crying, uh, look at that, it's, so it's amazing, then they get together at the end, and you're like, oh, or they don't, and you're like, oh, either way, either way, you understand that they had this, this tremendous love, and against all odds, they kept trying to get back together, and against the background of, you know, tragic human suffering. In a ruined world, God lets you know you're a character in the greatest love story ever told, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and that in his long suffering, he waits for more people to respond to his son and be saved. While his long suffering waits, he comes to us in our suffering when we call. And in those intimate moments, he shows us that we have in him a savior and a friend who understands our pain and who did something about it by dying on the cross to defeat sin once and for all so that we could know him and have him as our savior and friend. Let me put it like this. You may not like this comparison, but I think it's what Jeremiah came to understand. If you are sick, God can heal you, amen? Even people who don't believe in the so-called gifts of the Holy Spirit understand that God is still powerful enough and capable to heal people, and they can tell you about people that they know of who have been healed miraculously by God. And so God is able to heal you in his omnipotence. But what would you know about him other than his omnipotence if he healed you? Really? Really? If you're sick and God heals you, all you really know is that God is omnipotent and that he can heal. He wants you to know things that are impossible to know and that are otherwise inaccessible. And sometimes that means he won't heal you. He doesn't heal you. will give you an example from the Gospels. Jesus is in a house, he's teaching, and people are just crowded in. This... Guy has, he's a paralyzed man. He has four friends who are carrying him to Jesus to be healed. They can't get in the house, and so they climb onto the roof and they tear the roof off this house and they lower him in on ropes in right in front of Jesus. And Jesus is just blown away and he says, Wow, this is super! He goes, Son, your sins are forgiven, and <laughs> nothing. And then there's all this kind of idea, wait a minute, who is he to think that he can forgive sins? And then kind of, not, Jesus kind of, oh, oh, okay. So that you know that the Son of Man has the power on earth to forgive sins. Arise, get up and walk, take your bed. And the guy gets up and he's healed. And so Jesus, once and for all, he puts things into perspective. He says, it's nothing for me to heal somebody. It's the easiest thing in the world. God has... He's omnipotent. He's, he's a healer. It's a big thing for me to forgive you because it's going to require that I become a man and die on the cross and rise from the dead. And you need to experience the forgiveness of sins. You need to know that in a way that you can't just know Intellectually. And so that's what we're talking about this morning. God wants you to know things that are impossible to know and that are inaccessible. And while we live in a ruined world, he uses that as a backdrop in order to draw close to you when you call to him. Now, the rest of the verses are things that you do know about God that he can show you all the time. You need to understand that the whole creation currently groans, the Bible says, waiting for the son of God to return and claim what he conquered on the cross. In that broad context, there are things God wants to show you all the time, such as how it's all going to work out in the end. You know a lot about everything when you stop and think about it. I mean, here's what, you know, here's what I know for sure as a Christian. I know that if I die, that I will be resurrected from the dead in a glorified physical body that will inherit eternity. I know that there's a big possibility, a very real possibility that I might never die because Jesus is coming back and he's going to, at the time of the resurrection of the dead, he's going to rapture living believers. So I may be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at any moment. Nothing has to happen. That could just happen right now or 10 minutes from now. It could happen. I also know that when I get to heaven, I'm gonna stand before Jesus. He's gonna reward me for things that I did that were for his glory and if even if there's nothing I did that was for his glory I'm still in I may be in by the skin of my teeth but I'm still in and he's been building a mansion for me in a city called the new Jerusalem which is going to be way cool perfectly crafted for me then I know that I'm going to come back with the church with Jesus at the end of the great tribulation that I don't have to go through and I'm going to help rule and reign the earth for a thousand years, the millennial earth. I've put in my request to own a chain of coffee shops called Hebrews or something like that. That's an old one. Holy grounds, Hebrews, they're all goofy names, but anyway, Then I know at the end of that thousand years, God is going to finish his work with all of the wicked dead of all time. They're gonna be cast alive into hell. And then he's gonna create a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness where there's no tears, no pain, no aging, no anything bad, all good. I know that every minute of every day, no matter what is happening or not, whether I'm prospering Or whether I'm suffering, whether I'm blessed or buffeted, I know those things to be true. Then on top of that, God says, I can also come to you and give you a more personal experience as you call out to me. So that's what I know. Now, God's talking to Jeremiah about Israel and Judah, and so a lot of, obviously, this chapter is about their future. And so beginning in verse 4, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel concerning the houses of this city and the houses of the kings of Judah, which have been pulled down to fortify against the siege mounds and the sword. They come to fight with the Chaldeans, but only to fill places with dead bodies of men whom I will slay in my anger and my fury, all for whose wickedness I have hidden my face from this city. The Chaldeans, the Babylonians, they had already destroyed, they'd already taken control of all the outlying area of Judah. All those cities were under enemy occupation. They were at the walls of Jerusalem. People who lived in those outlying cities had come into the city for protection. There was a siege going on. And these were terrible. The the army out there, the most powerful army in the world at that time, well supplied. And you're just waiting inside, wondering how long you can last as the water ran out, as the food ran out. People were dying, and there was pestilence and all of these kinds of things. These people huddled inside the walls of Jerusalem. To reinforce the walls, because they'd be trying to get through the walls, dig through the walls, to reinforce the walls, there would be the palace and houses that were built with the wall as their, you know, major wall of the house. They tore down all these houses and all these palaces all around Jerusalem, making a huge pile of rubble on the inside of the wall, making it that much harder for the Chaldeans to get in, for them to come through. What a picture, what a dramatic picture to those people of what their sin had brought them to. The tearing down of their own houses with their own hands. You know, they thought by being worldly and worshiping Molech and Baal and all these other, gods, being like the people around them, they thought that they were being mature and that they were having a fuller, richer life. When all the time God was warning them that their lives were being destroyed. And finally, in this moment, they could see visually what they had done to themselves. God wanted to build them up, wanted to use them, wanted to use them to bless the entire world. And they said, no, nah, we, don't, we don't want to have any of that. We want, we want what the world has. And God says, all that the world has is death and destruction. You know, the devil, all he wants to do is rob and kill and destroy There's no Charlie Daniels reality to the devil. Do you understand what I mean? Remember that song, the fiddle song where he plays fiddle with the devil and he beats the devil because he's a better fiddle player? The devil's a better fiddle player than Charlie Daniels. I'm telling you that right now. He's a better everything than anybody who ever makes any kind of a deal with him. Anything you think and I think that we can do a little bit and get away with or get into this that we're eventually gonna be able to pull back... All you're doing is setting yourself up to destroy your own life and the lives of others with it because all the devil knows how to do is rob and kill and destroy. Build. Build. With tools of righteousness, with prayer, with fellowship, with the word of God. Build. It's not always as exciting to build. But it's better in the long run. Now with all of that terrible scene in mind, it's a thrill to read the next set of verses. Nothing new is revealed, but what a wonderful future they establish for Israel. Behold, I will bring it health and healing. I will heal them and reveal to them the abundance of peace and truth. I will cause the captives of Judah and the captives of Israel to return. I will rebuild those places as at the first. I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me. I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned and by which they have transgressed against me. Then it shall be to me a name of joy, a praise, and an honor before all the nations of the earth who hear uh, all the good that I do to them. They shall fear and tremble for all the goodness and all the prosperity that I provide for it. Thus says the Lord, again, there shall be heard in this place of which you say it's desolate without man and beast in the cities of Judah, in the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate without man and without inhabitant and without beast the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voice of those who will say, praise the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good. His mercy endures forever. And of those who will bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord, for I will cause the captives of the land to return as at the first, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in this place which is desolate, without man and without beast, and in all its cities, there shall again be a dwelling place of shepherds causing their flocks to lie down, In the cities of the mountains, in the cities of the lowland, in the cities of the south, in the land of Benjamin and the places around Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, the flock shall again pass under the hand of him who counts them, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. It's a description that looks beyond our own time to the second coming of Jesus to establish the kingdom of God on the earth. Verse 15, In those days and at that time I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In those days Judah will be saved, Jerusalem will dwell safely, and this is the name by which she will be called, the Lord our righteousness. So there he's talking about David being king over Jerusalem, a righteous king, and Jerusalem itself will be called the Lord our righteousness because it'll be the central capital of the world. Verse 17, for thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, nor shall the priests, the Levites, lack a man to offer burnt offerings before me, to kindle grain offerings and to sacrifice continually. Now, we know from scripture that there will be a temple in the kingdom during that thousand years, And sacrifices will be offered. If that troubles you, I'd refer to you our studies from Wednesday night in Ezekiel. The sacrifices are a memorial to show unsaved people who will be born during the 1,000-year reign of Christ what it cost for Jesus to save them. No one was ever saved by an animal sacrifice. No one can be saved by an animal sacrifice. They always pointed to the cross of Jesus Christ and they will again in the future. Verse 19, and the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that there will not be day and night in their season, then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne and with the Levites, the priests, my ministers. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, nor the sand of the sea measured, so will I multiply the descendants of David my servant and the Levites who minister to me. Now these are serious future prophecies and God says I must and will keep them. I will keep my promises to the physical descendants of Abraham and David. The Jews will continue to exist and we see them back in their land today never to be deported again. Verse 23, moreover, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, have you not considered what these people have spoken saying the two families which the Lord has chosen, he has also cast them off? Thus they have despised my people as if they should no more be a nation before them. Thus says the Lord, if my covenant is not with day and night and if I have not appointed the ordinances of heaven and earth, then I will cast away the descendants of Jacob and David my servant so that I will not take any of his descendants to be rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for I will cause their captives to return and will have mercy on them. The suffering in Jerusalem was so severe, so intense that the Jews themselves began to believe God had abandoned his promises to them. Not possible, but they believed that. And you can understand, remember? They're they're under siege. Their city is going to be destroyed. Their temple is going to be burned. They're going to be carried away captive. Those are just the things that were promised. They're prophesied. In that siege, that many people living together in those conditions, running out of food, starving, disease, pestilence, cannibalism, as individuals died and you ate them because you didn't have any food, it's easy to see how you would lose hope. Imagine if we were the last Christians on earth and these were our walls and we were huddled inside. We pulled down the youth building and piled it around us. And it was the zombie apocalypse and zombies were trying, and that was it. And we'd been holding out for six months, eating Christmas decorations. (laughs) You, You tend to lose hope. And so God comes and he says, I warned you it was gonna be rough. This is where sin leads. It leads to destruction and tragedy. It leads to cannibalism and, and, and all of that ruin. He goes, but I cannot fail in my promises to the nation of Israel. Just like there's gonna be a day tomorrow and a night after that, if you can break the day and night cycle, then I can break my promises with Israel. That's how strong those promises are. Christians, some Christians come along and they say, well, he's just talking about his promises to believers. There's no real plan for the Jews. Yes, there is. And these verses are among the many verses that say that. He's not talking about believers. He's talking about the descendants of Abraham and David, the ethnic people, the Jews. We have a lot of promises too, And we're on the coattails of their promises, but God is dealing with Israel as a nation. And anybody that doesn't understand that just isn't thinking. They're just not looking at the Middle East for what it really is, the fulfillment of centuries old prophecies that Israel would be in her land again. We are living in the last days. Now, while we await the end that never ends, we're called upon to endure all of us endure some suffering since the world is ruined awaiting its ultimate redemption. When we do, we can call upon God knowing he wants to show us impossible, inaccessible things about his love that we could never know any other way. And there are many things, I went through a, a large list of them and there are more, there are many things that we always know all the time. And the combination of those makes us a people that should be joyful and reaching out to others so that they can come into this wonderful knowledge. Are you in a trial? Maybe you're in the midst of some suffering. Do you feel like you're failing? You can't hold on much longer. You're ready to give up. Maybe just a few minutes ago or earlier this morning, you looked at, at, at yourself and maybe in the mirror and you said to God, I can't take this anymore. Well, if nothing else, God is showing you that it's not up to you, but it's on him to keep you and to bring you safely home. You know, God's not, God's not upset when I say to him, God, I cannot, I can't do this. I, I've, I'm at the end of my rope. I, I, and he says, yeah, that's, that's where I come in. That's where I hold on to you. That's where we walk through this together. You have no strength. Of course you can't make it on your own. This is too big for you. It's too terrible. I mean, you name it, the things that happen to people. You know? What are we all afraid of? Cancer. Nobody wants to go to the doctor and have the doctor come back with that face and say, you have cancer. And then you think, well, how long is that gonna go? I mean, what what can you tell me? I don't know. We all want it. And then we come back and say, well, the doctor said I had, you don't know that. You'd be in a car wreck after you find out you had cancer and die right then. I don't want to make it sound worse than it is. It's pretty bad. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I, maybe it's because I'm old. I never talked like this when I was younger because I was younger. Now I'm an old man. I could go any minute. <laughs> I mean it. I'm not, I'm not laughing about it. I mean, it Just you don't know what's going to happen. I, I've seen more tragedy and destruction as a pastor and as a chaplain than I care to and then there's just then there's emotional pain that people go through. And so, you know, this is the world in which we live and 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 you need to know that you cannot take it. God's not asking you to take it. He's saying, "I want you call on me and I will show you inaccessible things that are impossible for you to realize about my grace which is sufficient for you, about my forgiveness." which has received you about my mercy, which can be with you. That's what Jeremiah was told. God didn't answer any prayer. He said, I am the answer to your prayers. Paul the apostle, he had some terrible affliction. He prayed about it and God said, it is for my glory. And then Paul said, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, Works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. All these Bible guys had to get this at some point. And all of us Bible believing Christians, we need to get it as well. Let's pray.